We are in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We are walking through the letters that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, dictated and sent to an angel to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. And John has sent these letters to the seven churches there in Asia Minor. Uh, we are now in Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, who is true. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Father, as we continue to read through this letter and study it, may, your, may you open our eyes to the open doors which you have given to us, and may you motivate us to walk through those open doors. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, he's writing to the church at Philadelphia, and that is not in Pennsylvania. Uh, this is the church at Philadelphia in Asia Minor. Uh, Philadelphia is the youngest of the seven cities that are listed there in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. It was built by Attalus II. I just knew that you were going to be here this morning and say, I sure wish I knew who built the, the, the church, the city of Philadelphia. Well, Attalus II who was one of the kings there in Pergamos. Uh, he had them build the city in Philadelphia in 150 B.C. He built that city to honor his brother, Humanus. He did so out of his great love for his brother, out of his great devotion to his brother. Therefore, he wanted to honor his brother by building this great city. And so the city of Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love. Brotherly love. So that is how the, the city of Philadelphia got its name, the city of brotherly love. Now notice what Jesus says in writing that city. In addressing uh, himself to that city, the characteristics of himself that he lists there in chapter 1, uh, he specifically addresses to particular churches knowing what's going on in that church and how he needs to address certain flaws or needs to commend that church for certain things is connected to the character of the life of Christ. So if you excuse me just a minute, I need to drink a little bit of orange juice. My sugar's dropped a little while ago, so let me get it up. So, if I uh, don't make any sense, you'll know it's not me, it's my blood sugar. Okay. These things says he who is holy. Holy. For instance, Psalm 99, verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill. For the Lord our God is holy. Why do we exalt the Lord? Why do we worship the Lord? Why do we gather together in this place in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and lift up praise and worship to Him. Why? Number one, He's holy. Number two, He's holy and you're not. Number three, He's God and you're not. He's the one who's in control of all things. He's the one who brought all things into being. He's the one who sustains all things. He is the one who is Lord over all things. 
and he is a holy God. He is a holy Lord. In fact, you remember the very first sermon you heard me preach. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 4. One of those seraphim around the throne of God that Isaiah saw Christ to the other and says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, it says, For such a high priest, the high priest of the Lord Jesus Christ, was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Now, why did he say separate from sinners? Why did he say when he's listing all these wonderful characteristics of our great high priest, he says he's separate from sinners. Why is that? Because that's the definition of holy. Holy means to be separate, apart, and removed from all things sinful. Now that presents a problem for us. Why is that? Well, He created us to be able to live in union, in fellowship, in oneness with Him. That was His intention from the beginning. That's why He, he uh, brought us into being. That through us, we can put the greatness of all that He is on display. But then in the garden, there's this little thing, little three-letter word, sin. Seems so innocuous. Seems like just a trivial thing. Three letters, sin. But that little thing, sin, what was the sin? God said, don't eat. What did they do? They ate. That one sin separated all of mankind from a holy God. Why did it separate us from Him? Because now He was holy and we are sinful. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin, that which we earn as a result of our sin is death. Separation, cut off from the source of life who is God. If that was the end of the story, we'd all be without hope. But the wages of sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So He is the one who is holy. All that we do, we're to do in reverence and awe and wonder and worship of a holy God. Now the amazing thing is, where God is holy and we were not and we were sinful, God provided the means through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the sacrifice He paid on Calvary's cross on our behalf, whereby we who are sinful could be declared and made holy, righteous before God. Therefore, we can be clothed with the very righteousness, with the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, these things says He who is Holy. Now he's writing to this church at Philadelphia. And it's interesting because five of the churches, five of the seven churches he writes to, has a fatal flaw in each of those churches. We see the Lord Jesus Christ walking through these seven churches with eyes as flame of fire. He is penetrating to the depths of the hearts of the people that make up each of these churches. He is gazing and determining not only what they are doing, why are they doing it? 
What's the motive behind all of their works that they're doing? With five of the churches, he finds a fatal flaw in those five churches. And we've discovered that we see a downward spiral taking a church from where they need to be, where they should be, where God founded them to be, and through that downward spiral, they get themselves involved in sin. They get themselves apart as far as they can be from God. There are two churches where God has nothing negative to say about those churches. The first church we've already looked at, the church at Smyrna. Why didn't Jesus find any fatal flaw in the church at Smyrna? Because they were facing tremendous persecution. They were facing tremendous persecution. And persecution always purifies the church. Why? Because if a person is thinking about giving their life to Christ and becoming a part of the church, and they know that by giving their life to Christ, by being saved, by being a part of a local body of believers like that church at Smyrna, it could cost them their very life. It could cost them the life of their families, their spouses, their children. It could cost them their jobs. It could cost them their livelihood. It could cost them their all. If a person knew, by lining their life up with the life of Christ, calling themselves Christian, being a part of a local assembly of believers at church, if they knew by doing that, there was a very, very high probability that somewhere over the next week, at the most the next month, they're going to be killed. Or their family's going to be killed because of their faith in Christ. That kind of weeds out the people that are not sincere. That weeds out the people that are just there to have a good time. And that weeds out the people that are just there for entertainment. That weeds out the people that just want you to make them feel good. You get the people that are absolutely sincere in coming to understand the depth of their sinfulness and know that they need a des they desperately need a Savior who is only Christ the Lord. So persecution always purifies the church. But then you come to this church in Philadelphia. He doesn't find anything wrong in Philadelphia. No words of criticism. No words of judgment. Why is that? Well, he says, These things says he who is holy. They were reflecting his holiness. And he who is true. True. Now, the word true here is a word that uh, for true that is used as the opposite of that which is counterfeit. It is the word genuine. It means authentic. It means He is the real deal. He is absolute truth because He is the one who is true. Now, interestingly enough, the book of Revelation here in just another few chapters is going to talk about one who is referred to as the Antichrist. The one who's the counterfeit Christ the one who is opposed to Christ, the one who is the opposite of Christ, the one who claims to be Christ, but is actually from Satan himself. Jesus, before he starts dealing with the Antichrist, is writing to this church in Philadelphia, and he says, I want you to know, I'm the one who is holy, and I am the one who is 
true. There is no one who is true apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other God but Him. He's holy, He's true. For instance, in John chapter 1, verse 14, same John that's writing this revelation wrote John, the Gospel of John. In his great prologue of his Gospel, he says, And the Word, that's Jesus, He is the living Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Now, why did the Word have glory? Why did, he, why did He have glory? Because He is glory, which means He is holy. Holy. His glory flows out of His holiness. So He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Why was He full of grace? Because He is grace. Why is He truth? Because He alone is the one who is true. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, Jesus said to Him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Well, by the way, while we're there, if He is the only one who is true, the only one who is truth, what does that make anything that's opposed to Him? A lie. A lie. Well, it just so happens, Satan is called the father of all liars. Liars. And where he is the one who is the life, says Satan was a murderer from the beginning. Well, in John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, this is the most extensive prayer we have of the Lord Jesus recorded in Scripture. He's praying this prayer after He leaves the upper room with His disciples the night before the crucifixion. He's observed the Passover meal with them. He is walking toward the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. He stops outside the courtyard of the temple area. And while He's there at the temple area, he lifts up this prayer to the Father. This is the Lord's Prayer. John 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Which is in all through John's Gospel, He keeps saying, the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. Now He says, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may also glorify you, as, I have given, as you have given Him authority over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. And this is eternal life. What is eternal life? We say a person needs to be saved. We say that a person needs to be born again for this primary reason, that they may have eternal life. Well, if that's what salvation is all about, if the, the ultimate purpose of salvation is to give eternal life to those who were in death, sinners, then what is eternal life? That seems to be, to me, the most important question in human existence. What is eternal life? Interestingly enough, when I ask most people in churches what eternal life is, 
they don't know. Say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. If that is the most important question, if that is the ultimate primary purpose for all of salvation, if that is why Jesus Christ came, lived a sinless life, died on Calvary's cross, a substitutionary atoning death on our behalf, taking the punishment that we deserve, if that's why it's all happened, then we ought to know what eternal life is. Is eternal life getting to live forever in heaven? No. No. And yet, most people think the reason you need to be saved is primarily so you get to heaven. No. No. Always remember, you compare Scripture with Scripture. That's why I take you through all these different verses. As, as, you, as you walk, when you see one concept one place, as you look at other places where it shows up in Scripture, in one of those other places, it's going to give you a better idea of what that word or that phrase means. And this is eternal life. So this is it. Jesus says, He's the one who came that we might have it. He knows. And this is eternal life. That they may know you. He's talking to the Father. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ that you sent. Why did Jesus Christ die? Because you're a sinner and your sin has cut you off from God. It has separated you from your God. He came, lived a sinless life to be an adequate substitute on your behalf, a fit substitute on your behalf. On the cross, He bore all of your sin in His own body. He received the wrath and the punishment that we deserve for our sin. He died in our place for this reason, so that you could know Him. So that you could know Him. And that word know, to be brought in intimate union with. Not just to know things about Him, but that you could be interconnected to Him. You can be one with Him. That's why. If you thought your salvation was primarily about getting you to heaven and getting you out of hell, no. It's to be connected to Him. Now when you're connected with Him, you're going to be where He is. Guess where He's going to be throughout all of eternity? In heaven. And you're going to be there because you know Him. It's all about who you know. All about who you know. If you don't know Him, you don't have life. If you don't know Him, you're still in your sin. If you don't know Him, you're living a lie. You're living a lie that either you yourself have made up as to how good you think you are and a lie based on what you think it takes to get to heaven or you've listened to somebody else who's fed you a pack of lies and you've bought into it. Here's the deal. He's the only one who is true. He's the only truth there is. And it's only in Him that you have eternal life. John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. 
And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding. What understanding of what? He's come and He's given us understanding. He's opened up our minds by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who came at Pentecost, now indwells every one of us as believers. When the Holy Spirit comes, He gives us understanding. Apart from Him giving you that understanding, you'll never find it. You'll keep believing the lie. But when the Holy Spirit opens your heart and your mind to be able to see and understand, this is what you understand, that we may know Him who is true. And, it gets even better, we may know Him who is true. Why can we know Him? And we are in Him who is true. In who? In His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. That'll preach. Pastor, He wants us to know what's true. And He says He's the one who is true. And when you're saved, not only does He forgive you of your sin, He takes you and puts you into the Lord Jesus Christ. That's awesome. He puts you in Him who is true. I am surrounded by truth because I'm surrounded by Christ. My life is being lived in Him. As I'm living my life, it's actually not me, it's Him living His life in me as I am in Him. Are you in Him or is He in you? And the answer is yes. Yes. Now that being true, that I am in Him and He is in me, what do I have to be afraid of in this life? What do I have to be anxious about? Why, do, why am I depressed? Why do I find myself, when I'm tempted, giving in to sin? That has no place in my life. You know why it has no place in my life? Because I'm in Him and He's in me. And that's what is true. You only get anxious, you only get depressed, you only get discouraged, you only get yourself in sin when you start to believe the lies. When you start to believe the lies of the enemy, when you start to believe the lies you conjure up in your own heart, when you start to believe the lies of the world, all this bad stuff comes. The solution to all of that, folks, is to cling to that which is true. And that which is true is Jesus. That's Jesus. All right. Ooh, I like that. All right. Maybe I'll preach better when my sugar drops. All right. So we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Then Revelation 3.7, he says, These things says He who is holy, He who is true, and He who has the key of David. The key of David. What in the world is the key of David? Well, the key of David must be the key to David's house. Must be the key to David's stuff. In fact, remember, when you're reading, when you're reading through Revelation, you've got to go back to the Old Testament. With all the things that you think that are signs and symbols, they're all go back to the Old Testament, you'll find what they actually mean. For instance, Isaiah chapter 22, beginning in verse 20, 20 through 22. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, 
Now that, that's David's heart. I will, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe. I will strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your response. Now, first of all, he says, I'm going to give everything I got to him. And I'm going to commit your responsibility into his hand. His responsibility to do what he's supposed to be doing. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David. There it is. The key to the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. He shall open it and no one will shut. We're going to see that exact same wording here in just a minute. Uh, he shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one will, will open. What is this? The key to the house of David was the key to all the resources that David had at his disposal. All the resources that David had. It, it's access to David himself. The one who has the key has the power to act under David's authority. Well, Brother Tim, what does that mean here where it says, He who has the key of David. The one who's holy, the one who's true, the one who has the key of David. Who's the one he's talking about? Who's the one who's true? Who's the one who's holy? Who's the one who has the key of David? Jesus. Okay? That's who he's talking about. When it says he has the key of David, what is he saying? He says, I have access to all the resources that are mine on heaven and on earth. And whatever I've called you to be, whatever I've called you to do, I will provide for you everything that's needed to become it and do it. Everything. And when he gets ready to give the, the, the Great Commission, he says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Why? How? Because he has the key of David. He has all authority. He has all access, access to everything that he has created. So everything you need to accomplish the responsibilities. Remember, I will give him the responsibilities. Everything that he's called us to be and to do, the responsibilities he's given us in our Christian life, he says, I will provide for you everything you need. To become who I want you to become, do the work I've called you to do. That's important. And remember, he says, I'll open, no one can shut. I'll shut, no one can open. Revelation chapter 3, verse 8. I know your works. He says that to every church. I know your works. See, I have beset before you ah, an open door, and no one can shut it. An open door. He says an open door before. Isn't that good news? Well, you're not sure. Say, Brother Tim, what's the open door? I'm glad you asked. It's an open door for ministry. It's an open door to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with a lost and dying world. You say, Brother Tim, that, that maybe sounds good, but how do you know that's the open door? I'm glad you asked. Let's go back and see what the rest of the Word of God says. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, let's see what it says about this door. Furthermore, now Paul's writing, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by who? The Lord, the same Jesus opens this door for Philadelphia. 
what was the open door to do? To preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, I opened the door to be able to share the gospel. Acts 14, 27. And when they had come, to get, come and gathered the church together and reported all that God had done with them, and that He had done what? Opened the door of faith to who? To the Gentiles. Now, how did He open the door to the Gentiles? He opened the door when He opened the door to Paul and Silas, and they went and shared the gospel, and Gentiles got saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8. Paul writes and says, But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. He says, I'm going to stay here in Ephesus. Why? Because the Lord has opened a door for me. That's an effective door. To do what? To do what he'd been doing in Ephesus. What he'd been doing in Ephesus. Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people got saved. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. He says, continue earnestly in prayer. And by the way, you cannot share the gospel effectively. You cannot minister the spiritual gifts that God has given you to minister to the body of Christ unless those, those gifts and that work has been bathed and saturated in prayer. You say, Brother Tim, why are we building a prayer room? Yes, right here. We cannot be who God's called us to be as a church. We cannot do the work God's called us to do unless we are a people of prayer. Prayer. So he says, continue earnestly in prayer, being diligent, uh, in, it, or diligent in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us. What are we going to pray? That God would open to us a door for the Word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So he says, Revelation chapter 3, to the church at Philadelphia, what did he write to them and he said? He said, Adore, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. What was the open door? Faith, the Scripture is always consistent. Whatever it's always said, it will continue to say, the open door, as God had opened the door to effective witnessing. He had opened the door in Philadelphia for this church, that as they were going through their daily lives in Philadelphia, they were encountering people, they were sharing the gospel with people, and it was effective. God was saving the lost, through this little church of Philadelphia that was just being a faithful witness. He'd opened the door. He'd opened the door. Well, Bill, I wish you'd open a door somewhere in this area. Wait a minute. Maybe he has. Maybe he has. Why did he establish a church at Wasp of Salt 240 years ago? Why did he place it on the hearts people to start a church in this community? Well, there's a lot of reasons. You know one of those reasons? Because he knew one day you would be a part of Wasp of Salt Baptist Church. And he's opened a door in our day and time, in our age, in this area. He's opened the door.
to be a witness. You say, well, this area sure wasn't like it was 25 years ago whenever I was here. No, it's not. There's a bunch of people down here now that wasn't here whenever I left and went to North Carolina, you know, 20, 23 years ago. I mean, this area has changed, hasn't it? Do you know why? Do you know why it's changed? Do you know why it's so many people here? Do you know why in the parking lot of our church they're about to build a water park? You heard that? In the parking lot of our church, right there where those woods are, on the other side, of, right there where the corn maids was, they're building a water park and a massive housing complex. Right there. I can throw a baseball to where it's going to be from here. Do you know why? God has opened the door. We're going to have a greater opportunity to be a witness for Jesus Christ than this church has had in 240 years of its history. Because there's all kinds of people around us now. We used to be out in the woods. We were in the sticks. I mean, you had to really hunt for Wasmasaw if you wanted to find Wasmasaw. You weren't just going to happen upon it. And now all of a sudden, open door. All kinds of people. Why are these people here? Let me ask you, why did these people move from up north down here? Why? Do you know why? Because they had a need within them they didn't even know they had themselves. They had a need for the Lord Jesus Christ. They had a need to be discipled and grow in their walk with God. There's some people that really had never heard the full message of the gospel before. There are some people that have responded to the gospel and they were saved, but they needed to grow in their walk with Christ. And guess what? God said, Watch my soul. Here's the open door. Here they are. That's why you're here. I was in Burgos, North Carolina. Had a great church, great ministry, good people that loved us, care about all that kind of good stuff. God was doing good things in that church. God said, You know, Tim? Needs you to move back toward home. Why? Because he was saying, Tim, you served me for 40 years. Now let me give you an open door. And boy, has he opened the door. It's been amazing. It's been amazing. And some people are trying to event, taking, taking advantage of this open door. You're sharing the gospel. That's a good thing. I love my brother Bill here. My, my brother Bill, man, he's a marketing whiz. Uh, if you've been on any social media lately, you've been on Facebook or anything like that, Brother Bill has been posting stuff online, you know, about our church, you know, good, wonderful things and pictures and music and all that kind of stuff, words of encouragement. A couple of different posts have had over a thousand views just this week. A couple of thousand people seeing Wasmasaw. Why? Because God is opening the door. Opening the door. And he says, and nobody can shut it. Oh, they'll try. They'll try. But they can't shut it. Because think about what we have the opportunity to do. Okay? The open door is open so that we can share the gospel with those who are lost. Think about what we have the privilege of being used by God to do. 
that person that maybe you know that's out there hurting? Maybe they got a bad marriage. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe they got family problems whatsoever. And they're out there and they're not involved in the church. They're probably not even Christian at the time. But they are struggling. And you want to be a good friend to them and you want to help them. Do you want me to tell you exactly how you can help them? You sit down with them and you say, let me share with you what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in my life. Let me tell you how I came to know him. Let me tell you how you can know him. And you just take, the, take a few minutes, share the gospel, and their whole life is going to change. God will open that door of their heart, and all those things they were fussing and fighting about, all of a sudden he's going to take the things that Satan was using to pull that family apart, and he's going to bring them closer together than they've ever been. That's what happens when people get saved. Hey, the, the person you might know, this is a drug addict, alcoholic, and they are enslaved to that stuff. And, and they just keep going. They're chasing that first high they ever got. They keep chasing it, can never find it. They keep trying, and they're in bondage to that stuff. They're, they're destroying their life, and they're destroying their families and losing their jobs. You've got a chance to go to them and say, you know, my life wasn't so great either. And I have my own issues. My issues might be different from yours, but I had my own sin. But let me tell you what Jesus did about my sin and what he did for your sin. Let me show you how you can find something that's true. Let me show you how you can find life. And you can share the gospel with them. And God and grace will open up their heart. By grace, they'll be saved. And He's going to change who they are. He's going to change their heart. He's going to change their life. And the stuff that they tried time and time and time again through treatment programs and by their own will, to try to let go of it and walk away from it, never could. Now all of a sudden, because they're saved, the power of Christ is going to be able to break that bondage in their life and set them free. And you can be a part of that. I mean, you can be a part of that. That other stuff that's out there, you don't know the kind of abuse that some people you know has been living through. You don't know the abuse they've been living through. Physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse. They have been beat down in life. They are hurting, and maybe they act out as a result of all that pain in their life. And you're going to be able to come up to them and say, you know, my life was a mess too. I might, my life might have been different from yours, but I had my own set of issues. Everybody does. Do you know why all of these things happen? It's because sins come into the world. When sin came into the world, we rebelled against God and we disobeyed him. Along came all the hurts and the pains and the sufferings that this life brings. It brings the kind of things that you walk through. And that's the way we would always be, except God loved us. And He's provided a way for us to find healing and help from all those scars, from all that pain. You don't have to be controlled by what you've been through anymore. You can be set free. Can I just take a minute and share with you how you can do that? And you just share the gospel. And all of a sudden, that person whose life was torn in a million different pieces, and some of those pieces seem to be missing, and they're empty. Now, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that life can finally be made whole. And you can be a part of that. Simply by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's the one who makes all the difference. He's the one who's true. He's the one who's holy. He's the one who is life.
in all of its fullness. So he says, so I've set before you an open door, an open door that no one can shut. But he says he's also the one that will shut it and nobody will open. I don't have time to get into this one. I'll pick this up a little bit later. There are some people that believe these seven churches are a timeline of church history. If that is true, if that is true from John's day to this present age, you walk through the seven churches, and the church that exists in the world is characterized by certain things in different ages. If that is true, we're living in the Philadelphian church age. The door's been opened for us to share the gospel in the world in a way that has never been opened before. We have freedom in our country to worship. We're sending out missionaries. We have the internet. We can go to China on the internet. We can go to India on the internet. We can go everywhere and share the gospel online. He's opened this one final door. He's opened the door for the sharing of the gospel. But he says, I also can shut, no one can open. There's a day coming when the door's going to shut. It's going to shut. That period is known as the Great Tribulation. That's the church of Laodicea, which is the next church. But for now, we have an open door. Now I want to tell you, church, I love our church, and I love coming here and filling, filling the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, I love when people come in here and when they hear the gospel, their lives have changed. But if all we're about is coming in here and having a great time together, we've wasted the opportunity of the open door. You see, the door is out there. Okay? We walk through here to go out there to take the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it may shock and amaze you if you just take the time to look for the opportunities and say, when God opens the door, when God opens the door, I'm going to take advantage of that opportunity. And whatever happens is going to be up to the Lord, but I'm at least going to share. So how do you do that? I mean, how do you actually do that? How do you walk through the door? How do you take advantage of the opportunities that God brings us? Be back tonight. Okay? All right? Be back tonight. Okay? That's what we're going to do. I'm going to show you, and I'm going to put in your hands a resource I've written, okay? From sources I've gathered and just some of the stuff the Lord's given me. I'm going to give you a resource. If you want to know how to walk through the door, you'll find out tonight. But could it be someone's open, the Holy Spirit has opened the door of someone's heart right here today? I say, Brother Tim, this, this knowing Christ that you talk about, this having your life changed, this having your sin forgiven, I need that. 
beloved, if that's you, I want you to know it's all available in Christ. And you might still have some questions. I'm going to give you a chance to come talk with me and we'll work through that. But everything you're looking for is in Christ. If only you will open the door of your life and yield control of that life to Him. Lord, just take over who I am. My brother and sister in Christ, the door is open, and He's opening it even wider for us. If He tarries in His coming, we're going to have opportunities as a church unlike anything in our church history. He will only do that work within a group of people that He knows will be faithful. Can he trust us with the open door? I'm committed to do whatever it takes. Will you join me?